Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Adrian Van Vactor. Uh, been a long time since we've had you on. Yeah, been a, been a couple months probably. Yeah, but always a pleasure to have you, and noting as well your experience as an evangelist and a member of Faith Search International mm-hmm. is the ministry people can contact and support you through. Always encouraged and well-received. If you have questions for us regarding the Bible or in his experiences, you have a, uh, I guess, a contributing role to a book, Unmasking the Masquerade, mm-hmm. which goes into your experience as an entertainer of the uh, deceptive sorts. <laughs> when uh, I finish giving out the email address and the, f- and the uh, contact information, we'll go a little bit into that. If you have questions for him, he'll be here a few more times over the next week and a half. Everyone at our church decided to take vacations at the same time, so I'll even be here by myself. Pray for me. But that <laughs> being said, if you want to join us and send us your Bible questions, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can give us a uh, personal message there and join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and if you click on the Watch Live tab, the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page, ccftucson.online.church. There at the right-hand side of the screen, you can leave your comments for us, and that will be all available and ready for you. Also note, social media is YouTube at A Reason for Hope. Facebook, we are still on the outs with, haven't uh, heard back in regards to their uh, taking down of one of our discussions of abortion. So until Mm. then, I will continue to insist on repeating the point. Abortion is in fact a sin, and if you don't like that moral statement, sue me. Oh wait, they already did. But the point being made is that. If you want to join us on Facebook, it is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since they are taking down our information without just cause, we don't recommend it. If you do want to join us, however, on YouTube or our website, those are encouraged (coughs) and at both resources. If you want to know the spelling of our email address, maybe listening to us on Reach Radio, for future reference and use, that will be available at the bottom of the screen as well. You can engage with us face-to-face. Now, obviously, we want to take some time to dedicate this broadcast in prayer, so why don't we do that, and then you can go a little bit into your experience and background, maybe uh, set the tone for some of the questions that will be asked during the broadcast, but before uh, we say anything, let's make sure God's the one do it. saying and empowering it. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We know that we don't have the right to be anywhere or do anything in your name apart from your mercy. So we want to ask that you would fill Adrian and I with your spirit, equip us with your heart and your voice to properly represent your word and your character. Allow your people to not only ask questions that are on their heart, but to do so out of a love for you. Enable us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. All that being said, I alluded to it, but the kind of entertainment that you do and your role as an evangelist, much like with our outreach and using my sculpting, uh, you've uh, developed a trade of sorts as an entertainer. What is that, and how have you used it to engage people with the gospel? Yeah, as a kid, I was fascinated with the art of illusion, 
a pretty lonely kid, you know, with a broken family and moving a lot. I think I added him up one time. Uh, by the time I got to my freshman year in high school, I had attended 10 different schools. So it was a, a, a real simple way for me to develop an interest and create new friends. So I would do like little coin tricks and card tricks. And as I got older, I joined the Society of American Magicians, again, just with a desire to be a good illusionist, to be able to perform on stage, to be able to make a living. At 13, I determined this is what I wanted to do for a living. However, what I didn't plan on was the majority of the guys that I got to know at this club, <clears throat> which is an actually international organization, but the chapter in Tucson was one of the largest chapters in the world at one time. Many of them were believers <clears throat> and offered to teach me sleight of hand, but would also teach me the gospel, would invite me to church. So I developed some really great relationships. In fact, one of those relationships at 13 years old was the main author of the book that we co-wrote together called Unmasking the Masquerade. And so <clears throat> when I became a believer in my late teenage, almost college age years, uh, when when the Lord just got a hold of my heart and I came to him and decided that I wanted to serve him with uh, my whole life, I thought, okay, that means I can't do magic. I have to, you know, give this up because it's secular. I didn't view it as like the occult because I knew that it was just entertainment, like juggling, doing card tricks, creating special effects in movies. So in my mind, I had no uh, indication that it was something that was occultish or satanic. It was just secular, and secular things ought to be discarded, like listening to rap music and playing sports. At least that was my perception at that time. It's the kind of <clears throat> deception where they mix in dishwashing soap and soda to make it more fizzy in yeah. commercials. Yeah. It's deception not with a message, but deception right, yeah. with the intent to entertain. Yeah, well, one person once put it that uh, magicians are the most honest people in the world. They tell you they're going to lie and deceive you, before they proceed to do it. And so with that in mind, um, I started uh, touring as an evangelistic ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ International. And this would have been 1993 that I started this role. And uh, so I was 19 years old. I was a brand new believer. And now I'm on this huge program with the Andre Cole Ministry, a ministry of Campus Crusade, and seeing this very godly man share the gospel with millions of people across the globe in 80 countries and going to places that no one would ever be able to go and say whatever he would say as far as the gospel concerned, except for the fact that he was a world-renowned illusionist. He was uh, uh, one of the top consultants, David Copperfield, Siegfried and Roy, some of the greatest, in fact, he was considered by many as one of the greatest illusion inventors of all time, just someone who had a brilliant brain on how to create special effects on stage in the platform of being an illusionist. <clears throat> and so it was at that point that I realized, wow, I can really reach a lot more people um, by keeping the skill that I've developed over my young youth life and devoting it to God. And that's what I ended up doing and uh, have been doing that ever since. Yeah. And of course, when you're engaging people with these things, what would be a, <clears throat> like, 
three to five minute breakdown of how you would present the gospel. Obviously, you don't have your uh, newspapers or your coins here, but uh, when you're explaining these things, obviously Mm -hmm. people say, well, magic tricks, obviously, in the best case scenario, they would think of that as secular. How do you tie it in? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's actually quite natural, uh, surprisingly, especially if I'm in a foreign country where superstition might be a little elevated. For example, a couple of the places in the world that I've spent the most time in is South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, the Middle East. And whenever I'd go to these places, of course, I would begin my show by just doing visuals to music. It was a very musical presentation. Because of the language barrier, the more talking I would do, the longer the show would be. And so I always limited my talking to only things that I needed to say. So that is to, you know, the whole point of using any platform that's not just public speaking you know, like Jesus did with sharing stories and parables. He was, in a sense, using an entertainment attention-getting device to draw attention, and it worked because people would often say, or as the Scripture even says, um, that no one talks this way. So he would use an art form of storytelling called parables to drive one theological main point. And so I would do the same with my show. I would draw a crowd because I'm an international award-winning illusionist, and of course, being from the United States by itself would draw a little bit more credibility. Maybe not so much now, but at that time in in the mid-90s, it actually garnered quite a bit of credibility. The fact that I you know, and it won the internationals as a teenager in Las Vegas and those kinds of things. It was very easy to put out a flyer on any college campus and draw, you know, a couple thousand students. And so I, the first 40 minutes of my show is just entertainment with a, a weave of comedy, audience participation, wowing their eyes. <clears throat> and then there comes a point where I do what's called the disclaimer. And the disclaimer is very simple. By the way, and I usually follow the disclaimer after I, I reach a point in the show and I do the one effect that makes people scratch their heads going, okay, wait a minute. Everything was fun. I don't know how he did it, but I can tell it's just sleight of hand. He's just really good with his hands. I can tell it's not supernatural, but that one, that one seems like he's playing with paranormal stuff. And I did that on purpose. I would make sure that everything I would do was comical clearly the the skills of a sleight of hand artist meaning i'm hiding it you just can't see where it's going so making it very clear that i and i would say things like i don't claim to have any special powers or special abilities and then i would say and i would do this one effect depending on the audience and where i was at i would choose an effect that would most get them going okay this is supernatural she didn't just swallow the Sprite. That's yeah. weird. <laughs> this is supernatural. And then I would immediately explain that it's not. And I would point to examples in that particular culture, uh, and I would say many people claim. And then I would rattle off whatever it was in that culture and, <clears throat> and then duplicate some of the things that students in that country might have experienced or thought to be real and then sort of expose it. So I was kind of demonstrate... There's a lot of liars out there. I've told you right up the front that what I'm doing is just a trick. It's not real. But they'll use these techniques to tell you it is real, and this is what it would look like. And here's what they're actually saying. Here's the lie. So I would do that. Then they would walk away with their first big aha. The first big revelation is not he's a Christian, not here's the guy who's just here to you know talk about the Bible, and he also knows a card trick. 
no, I'm already 45 minutes into my program. I've developed a rapport. I've developed a relationship with my audience, and I've developed credibility and earned the right to speak. And now I've offered something of a great service. I have done something that they only heard or thought they've seen to be real, explained how it worked and how it's deception and a lie, and then how easy it is to be deceived. And then I'd ask, I usually ask a very simple question. Why do people believe in the supernatural? I've just got done doing all these things that might be supernatural and explain how they're not. I've explained how things you thought you knew about in your own culture you thought to be supernatural, and it's not. So why does anybody believe in the supernatural at all? Why not just be an atheist and a skeptic? And that's where I would share my personal story. So I would share how I got into being an illusionist, how I answered the question for myself, and how I was confronted with the reality that God had to be real. And as I conclude my testimony, which is kind of emotional, because that's the whole point, is to share and connect on a human level, I would uh, simply end by saying, and then I met Jesus, and that's when things changed. And, and without any context of why or, or what Jesus did for me, I would leave it at that. And then I would do another effect, kind of break, break the flow, break the moment, and then before I do my finale, I would say, you know, I'm going to do my finale. <clears throat> before I do that, I've had many people come to me and they ask me, how did Jesus make such a difference? Because I would make it a stark contrast between my life before Christ and my life after getting to know who Jesus was and putting my faith in him. So seeing, explaining that contrast, naturally people would ask. And so I would just, rather than them asking me, I would just say, people often ask me. And so I'm going to take a few minutes to share an illusion that will illustrate the most important lessons I've ever learned in life about what life's all about. And they're seeking you out now. Now, I put it in their court. I say, now, if you feel like you might be offended, they've already seen my entire show. The finale is really just a sort of an extra. So they've been entertained. They've gotten to know me. I've built a relationship with them. So far, it's been a positive experience. And the only thing that I've said that might offend someone is Jesus changed my life. So that's hardly... Uh, and I've done this in mainland East Asia, <laughs> places where it's illegal to proselytize, and I was doing it in college campuses, openly sharing the gospel. I would have missionaries come, secretly come up to me and say, I've been here for 25 years and I've never seen anything like this. We would never dare do what you just did. But I was able to get away with it because I'm coming in as an entertainer, and so I can go and do go to places and say things that most people can. So that's the whole point is that when I get to this point in the program, especially in Islamic countries or uh, Hindu countries or places where there's a radical anti-proselytization laws or views that, hey, you're Western. We don't want anything to do with your Western religions. We don't care about anything else. But when it comes to religion, get out of here. <laughs> in places like that, this disclaimer becomes extraordinarily important. So I would just say, People always ask me this, and how did Jesus make a difference? And I don't want to offend you, and I don't, I'm not here to offend you. But if, if you want to stay, I'm going to share for about 10 minutes a simple illusion that illustrates what I learned and what it made a difference for me. And if you think you might be offended by something you think I might say, feel free to leave. I'm going to take a one-minute break. I'm going to walk off the stage, get a drink of water, reset the stage. During this one-minute break, I'm going to play some music. If you want to leave... Please feel free. I will not be offended. I mean, I am a guest in your country, but if you want to stay, <clears throat> people have commented to me that that was the most significant 10 minutes they'd ever experienced.
And then after that, I'll do my finale illusion. I've said that a couple thousand times on 59 international missionary journeys and not once have I ever seen anyone get up and leave. <laughs> and afterwards, because I gave the audience permission to leave and I asked them permission to share, I'm able to share the full gospel message, even invite people to pray with me without usually any negative feedback whatsoever. So that's kind of how I do it and why I do it. All right. Now, uh, we got some follow-through questions. Uh, definitely, I'd say, in your top 10 favorites to deal with. This is on our church website. Uh, you might be a little familiar with it. But the uh, question is regarding the illusion, the deception of the eye rather than the uh, occultic sacrifices mm -hmm. and so forth. He wants to know, is this the same thing the magicians of Pharaoh did during the time of the Exodus? So in reference to Exodus chapter 8. And could it be the same kind of magic the Antichrist could use? So with two passages in mind, I'll read them. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all signs, powers, and lying wonders. Mm -hmm. That the wonders aren't necessarily wonders per se, they're messages. They're meant to deceive. Mm -hmm. That even in regards to giving life to the image of the beast, Revelation 13 is very explicit. It was given to him mm -hmm. authority to give life to the image of the beast. That the fallout of the sixth bowl judgment and the drying up of the Euphrates River, the serious fallout of that plague, isn't just that, uh, oh no, how will Iraq and Iran get a, one of their three main water sources? Mm -hmm. It's the um, demons going and performing signs to every nation to gather them against Christ at Armageddon. So the point being made is this. When people like the honest magicians say, I'm lying to you, I'm tricking you, I'm making sure I can manipulate your field of vision to do these tricks based off of my ability to know what you can and can't see, and the practice I've dedicated my life to, when the Egyptian magicians uh, performed, say, for example, the miracles verified mm -hmm. miracles that Moses performed. Say, for example, with the initial, okay, I'm going to turn this stick into a snake. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the Nile turn to blood. I'm going to make there more frogs than you know what to do with, mm -hmm. and on it goes. You draw special attention to verse, let me uh, make sure I can read this properly, verse 18 and 19 of Exodus chapter 8, where they stop trying to imitate the miracles after the lice, mm -hmm. and that's significant. But can uh, you address this, how you, you would usually handle it, and I'll deal with the Antichrist? Well, I guess I already did, but sure. the Exodus one. Yeah. <laughs> as far as the general answer, my, my personal view is that these, uh, like Thessalonians 2.19, you know, lying signs and wonders, counterfeit miracles in the NIV, I think counterfeits are really uh, a helpful term in understanding what those wonders are. Authority doesn't necessarily mean supernatural, it just means permission, because God's in control. So you have permission to do this. It could be a nuke, it could be a chemical warfare, or it could be supernatural. But the wonders, the, the, the signs, just means it's a symbol. doesn't necessarily mean it's supernatural, but the, the wonders are miracles. Now that is something that breaks the laws of physics. That's something that would be considered supernatural, and Paul is careful to point out that it's a counterfeit. It's not the real thing, it's, it's a copy. Um, so when it comes, so that's my general opinion is that the things that will happen in the last days, especially with the Antichrist and giving life to the image and so on, would be either some form of deception, uh, technology or something like along those lines. And I don't, I don't know that 
that it would be super. I wouldn't from the Antichrist. Not saying the plagues are all naturalistic. Yeah, but if the it's Antichrist an act of God, method. that's entirely different. <laughs> you know, the fire from heaven during the Exodus <laughs> is definitely. Uh, uh, or I'm sorry, when Elijah calls fire from heaven, it wasn't some natural phenomena. That was uh, like a miraculous sign from God. And, but the, uh, yeah. the the Antichrist's demonstrations of authority and sign-giving and quote-unquote power, power again could mean authoritative power, not necessarily supernatural power. And I think what happens is, and if I may just go on a tangent for a moment, one of the things, that, one of the mistakes that skeptics make is just presuming that everything has a natural explanation. Even believers sometimes will look at things and say, well, you know, uh, God could have had the volcano go off, and that could have caused this, and then there, then the... the that the, avoided the Goshen entirely? The river would have separated that way. So they try to just explain everything the way that God does as some kind of natural phenomena. And I think the same mistake can be made on the other side with Satan, just presuming that if you see words like authority or signs or wonders, that it automatically means supernatural, miraculous, wave your hand in the air, a demonic miracle takes place. <clears throat> and the reason I tend to gravitate away from those things is because throughout Scripture, God always sets himself apart through the miraculous. That's the first thing. The prophets of Baal... Right? I mean, they were even being mocked by the prophet, by the prophet of God, and they could not call fire from the sky. And uh, going down, you know, through Scripture, you start to see things like Psalm seventy-two, eighteen, and says, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who alone works wonders. He alone, Isaiah says, knows the end from the beginning." So that means a palm reader can't tell my future. Only God knows my future. Only God is exists outside of time. Every other creature, including the heavenly ones, are temporal. They live in time, even if they are incorporeal, meaning without physical bodies, if they're spirits. That doesn't mean that they are timeless and eternal in the sense that they've always been and always will be. They had a beginning point. They were created. So that being said, uh, said <clears throat> when it comes to the Exodus, that's kind of an interesting one because it does give the illusion, or it, it does give the impression, I'm sorry, not the illusion, the impression that that these pharaohs, these magicians of Pharaoh's court, were able to duplicate the miracles that God did. So when you go through the text, <clears throat> you first find an interesting word that's used. Like, for example, the three miracles, the first three that they do is the Canaan snake, the frogs, the Nile. Those first three, <clears throat> it says each time uh, Aaron would do speak on Moses' behalf, and then it says, then the Pharaoh's magicians, the magicians of Egypt, did the same. And then it gives a qualifier, with their secret arts. <laughs> and so that word secret arts is really the same kind of concept of what a magician does when he covertly hides or secretly hides a method of performing something. And the reason we know that these secret arts aren't some sort of demonic enchantment to gain or garner demonic power in order to duplicate the miracles that Moses and Aaron were performing in the same sense through satanic power, but just a little weaker because Satan's just not quite as strong as God is, I think is a wrong look at the text. Here's, here's why. First, you see Moses taking a dead stick and, and having it turn into a living, breathing creature, a snake. 
You know, the Bible says that everything that's been created has been created through Christ, and nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from him. Which kind of tells you that only God has the power to create life. <laughs> it seems to be a good indication of that. When it says the Pharaoh did the same, we can't assume that they actually did using the same technique, meaning a miracle from God. It just says they did the same using their secret arts. It just so happens that we've done that in our show, where we took a stick and turned it into a, a living, breathing snake and showed that an illusionist can absolutely, even as a long time ago as 1500s BC, and create the illusion of taking a stick and turning it and making it look like it turns into a, a snake. But and never work out, with animals. They're very uh, finicky. We would use an Arizona black racer. <laughs> and yes, it, it bites, but it's not poisonous. And when it bites, it hurts. We, my friend got blood all over him. But my mentor, who wanted to do it, we, we crafted the three of us how to do it. Actually, my mentor and I, we did it. And then I would come out, use, I'd hold out the stick, and then I'd hand it to him. And then when he would turn around, it would be a snake. It was really clever. We've had people run out of the room. We only did it a couple <laughs> times because it was a little too controversial, especially when we were doing our presentations in churches. People started thinking this is satanic because this is right out of the Bible. So we yes. just stopped. Plus, it was kind of hard getting bit by a snake right before you go out, you know, before every show. Because <laughs> he didn't like being put in the compartment that was necessary to be put in to create the illusion of him becoming... A, a living snake out of a stick, but anyhow. But the point being made is that you can do what they <laughs> we, were doing. We were doing they it weren't them, doing yeah. what Moses was doing. Right, they weren't doing what Moses was saying. Here's here's a clear sign why. First, there's the snake, and the frogs, and the, and the blood. And you have to ask yourself, the text says there were frogs everywhere. Well, if there's frogs everywhere, and it says the pharaohs of Egypt did the same thing, well... They didn't do exactly the same thing. The they text didn't make is clear. Double everywhere. They just made frogs appear. Yeah, they just needed to make a frog appear. They didn't or, need to make or two fro or just a table of frogs. Where are you they, gonna find frogs? Yeah, they could yeah, exactly. <laughs> they could not have made frogs appear everywhere because there already was frogs everywhere. So they had either a table or a basket and they made some frogs appear. That is like sleight of hand one oh one. In fact, my, my award-winning act that I took to Las Vegas and have toured all over the country with was making nine doves, a parakeet, and an Amazon jungle blue and gold macaw appear from my bare hands. And the macaw would appear from a, my bare hands out of a ball of fire that would make you like have to flinch. It was so bright. So that was the act that I won the internationals with in Vegas, standing on stage wearing my little tuxedo, and just making birds appear and letting them go and flying to my little perch. You can watch clips of it on my YouTube channel. If I can do that with no modern technology whatsoever, I, if I had the knowledge, I could have done it 3,000 years ago. It requires no technology, just a working knowledge of sleight of hand. Easy, easy, easy. So they had to do that. And then the same is true with the Nile, uh, just as a side note. It says that all the rivers, all the water was turned to blood, and that gives us an indication that they had to go and dig for fresh water. Well, to it says get, in the text. Yeah. yeah. And then I always ask the question, where did they get the water from if all the water was turned to blood? So they didn't do the same thing. They didn't turn Niles and rivers to blood. They had a bowl of water. And I think the Prince of Egypt, the, the, the animated film. The DreamWorks one, yeah. Uh, the DreamWorks animated film probably best depicts the scene 
accurately. Yeah, <laughs> they had doing a bowl all water. The... They sneak in some red powder. Because remember, it was this is why Pharaoh hardened his heart. He probably even knew, well, that's not quite as impressive. But it's enough to for me to just say no. You know what? That bowl just turned red. No. He knew. He had to have known there was something off. But here was the, 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 the clear indication that they were employing natural means, not supernatural means. When it came to the gnats or the lice, something very difficult to contain. I, I don't know I could figure out how to make lice appear on Sean's head other than taking him to a daycare center and playing with lots of little kids. Maybe he might get lice that way. I don't know. I got the hair for it, that's for sure. But <laughs> noting that point, I, uh, you it, could train a macaw, you could train even doves, yeah. but can you train lice? I don't think I could, even containing lice in a way to make it appear on people. You know, so I might, we might, with modern technology, be able to come up with a way to do that. But back then, there was no technology available to make lice appear on a person. Remember, there was already lice everywhere, so they couldn't make lice appear on everything. They had to just make lice appear on one person's head. So that means they'd have to clean the lice off somebody and then create the, the and supernaturally do it, but they couldn't. And here's, here's what's really interesting is they go to Pharaoh. This would have clearly risked their lives and said, they says they tried with their secret arts. That means they rack their heads together and go, how can we... How can we pull this off? Like I'm doing right now as I'm thinking about it. And they says they could not with their secret arts. And it says they go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. It took those, it took these level of miracles and then that, the lice, to convince them, okay, this is genuinely supernatural. This is beyond anything that we can conjure up with our natural ability. This is Daniel 2-level shenanigans going on here. and you never hear from them ever again. And what's also key is noting what do lice go after. I made a comment about my fuzzy bear status, but the emphasis and point is Egyptians were really dainty about these sort of things. We have historians that mention that there were slaves they'd cover in honey just specifically to attract flies away from Pharaoh. The guys would shave their heads, the girls would have wigs and little mascara and stuff. They'd pluck their eyebrows, not for today's reasons. They were dreadfully afraid of lice. And when this plague came, they only went on the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the Jews, they're slaves. They're not going to pedicures and, you know, grooming stations and shaving Mm -hmm. and stuff. They got more hair than they know what to do with, yet the lice are not only, and this is why I said trained, going after the Egyptians who don't have any body hair, and they make great efforts to make sure of that, but not going after the Hebrews who are hair buffets. So (laughs) noting God is not only creating these lice from nothing, but or dust in this case, but noting the point when they go they're behaving not like normal lice. Yeah, right. So, and if you think about it logically, if if Satan was supernaturally empowering the magicians of Egypt, the magicians of Pharaoh, and he can give them the power to take a dead stick and turn it into a living, breathing organism called a snake, which we can verify wasn't likely the case. Certainly, Satan could turn some dust into some lice. I mean, when you think about stick to snake, dust to lice. It's really not all that different. It's not like, you know, God took a boulder and turned it into an elephant and Satan went, oh, that's a little big for me. I can only do things as small as snakes and lice. <laughs> he didn't, he, because that's not what was taking place in the text. And that's, that's the view that I take. I, I tend to lean towards only God does miracles and anything else would be some sort of elaborate deception, unless God 
specifically intervenes in such a way so as to augment the deception because the people, as in the last days, it's very possibility, are so hard-hearted that God's actually aiding in the deception because it's already there and they're begging for it. You know, the idea that God sends a powerful delusion. You know, it's, it's, it's possible, but I just think it's unlikely, but it's possible that God could employ a supernatural intervention to, to help the deception, help the world have what it wants, and that is their false gods and their false miracles. Which, again, we don't even necessarily have to leave this text. A good example of God intervening in judgment would be the unnatural hardness of Pharaoh's heart, mm-hmm. because he's seen miracle after miracle. He is basically playing the third mm-hmm. grader over and over again and saying, oh no, consequences, yeah. consequences go away. Hey, I'm still in charge. The point mm-hmm. being made is that, though, when we're talking about these things, obviously you don't discount the ideas of possession, but you don't also at the same time attribute every single mental disorder as demon possession. You would recognize there are instances where the enemy is permitted use of power, but you don't say that everything that's attributed to the demonic is. In this case, and noting in the text itself, there is ample evidence, which you've provided, of these being literal magicians in the same Mm. way that you are, Mm. with one exception. They didn't tell Pharaoh they were lying to him. And that's the difference. Your message is the mm-hmm. gospel. Their message is Egyptian paganism. And yeah. guess which died out? I mean, yeah. And the, if you if, so people have tried to make that comparison, say, well, even if the magicians of Egypt were uh, employing trickery, you're still lying and deceiving people. And and I would say, no, it's the very opposite. We're enlightening. We're enlightening people. I've I've helped set people free, not just towards the gospel, but away from the occult, away from their cultural superstitions. I don't know how many students I've had come up to me in South and my multiple tours in South Africa who is steeped in witchcraft and and beliefs in the occult and spiritualism and and worshiping ancestral spirits and mediums and channelers. It's it's a, so a part of the culture that it's it's likened to um, the western trust in the in the doctor with the doctor lab coat. You know, we, if a scientist or a doctor says, thus saith the medical field, we kind of just say that's the truth. You know, that's kind of the Western mindset. Well, these witch doctors in South Africa, it's the same thing. If the Sangoma say it is, if they say, you know, they always go there before they would go to an actual medical professional for healing any kind of ailment. I visited these guys, I've tested them out to see what kind of things they were doing, and it was the same kind of parlor trick that you'd see any psychic, medium, sleight-of-hand artist perform, but the cultural hold on the minds of young people, the level of fear is so unbelievable that it just breaks your heart. So I, I, for many years, was cautioned from ever going and doing my program the way I do it. In, in places like South Africa, because they said, you just, they will believe it's real. I go, no, they won't, trust me. And so I would, you know, debate with leadership with Campus Crusade saying, this is the best place for me to go, trust me. So finally we did it, and the national director at the time for the college ministry of South Africa said, we need this on every campus in the country. And so I would do my disclaimers, I would talk about the witch doctors, I wouldn't say Sangoma because I didn't wanna like get killed. Mm. But I would say many people claim in this and that, and I would perform effects that were like what they would do in one of their presentations. 
And I'd have students running out the doors, like <laughs> literally thinking witchcraft is happening. And I would have staff, Campus Crusade staff, waiting. Little catchers. <laughs> catch them and say, he's going to explain it. I would ex- not only explain that it's a trick, but in many circumstances, I had to actually had to teach the inner workings of, of deception to say, this is how simple can create such a dramatic effect. You were running out the door, but yet you could go in your classroom with craft paper, scissors, and chalk and make what I just did in five minutes and perform it without really any skill. That's how clever and simple the deception is. But you believe it because of the way I presented it to you. And so I'd have students come to me crying, saying, I've been afraid. I don't sleep. I'm always afraid of getting a curse. I have to go to the witch doctor to get the curse removed because I got a bad grade. I didn't make first cut on the football team or whatever. Whatever issues going on in their life, they constantly believe it's some sort of ancestral curse or some spiritual entity or a demon. And I had to explain to them that these guys are lying to you and that they have no power over you and that the only power they have is your ability to have fear for them. But as long as you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And, and uh, boy, talk about free indeed. It was profound seeing a high school kid who's like all muscle crying going, <laughs> I've been like in traumatic fear my entire life and for the first time I think I can go to sleep tonight without being afraid of the dark. And that's the whole culture is that way. So yeah, it's a, it's a really important tool that we use to, to help people see how easy it is to be deceived, but we're not actually tricking people. Yeah. So note, demonic is deception with the intent of leading you away from God. Your art form is deception with the intent to entertain and inform, even as a leading into the gospel. Well, I wouldn't even say deception because... Deception indicate, uh, seems to indicate the idea that we're actually misleading somewhere when there's not even deception involved because we're explaining what we're doing. So we're creating an artistic effect, creating the, an image of reality at the same time disclaiming that it's just an a, a illusory effect. Just like the way I say it in the show sometimes, I'll say, have any of you seen superhero movies? Isn't it amazing those things that they can do? How do they do that? Oh, it's not real, you know? Oh, I didn't know it was fake. How do they do that? And they go, special effects. And I go, oh, wow, that's what I do as a magician. Except I do my special effects live on stage. You know, Superman can't really fly. Iron Man can't do those things. It's a special effect. I'm just using special effects, but on a stage. And all of a sudden, the light bulbs go off, and they go, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and that's really the emphasis and point, is when you're talking to people about these issues, that's what Mm -hmm. they need to take away. And likewise, in the message, people would say, oh, so you just tack Jesus onto it, and that makes it all right? Well, Mm -hmm. no, we need to first recognize sources and overall purpose. But it would be an art form, just like, for example, the Spirit of God being upon the people in Exodus who were used to sew together and to do metalwork for the articles mm-hmm. of the temple. The Spirit of God was equipping them for those things. Just like when I'm trying to engage people, you know, uh, model the heart of Christ just by being generous and giving people sculptures and so forth, I'm doing that with the intention of not only starting better conversations, but also just to be a an example of a decent person that they encountered that day. I don't day. know. Seems like you're just creating idols. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> little statues and carved images yeah. and stuff. Well, the but point the, we always try to emphasize from that, from talking to Christians is that uh, when Satan, the, the power of Satan, the, one of the things I like to say and remind people is that Satan's power is not in the effect, but in the lie. It's the message 
surrounding the deception that leads people astray. So even if the, the, the effect appears to be real, listen to the message. The message is what leads people astray. If the message points people away from God and to the occult or the idols or to the, just to the, the person themselves, they just want to gain a following for themselves, you know, the Sai Babas of the world, then, then that's evil. And we're pointing people to Christ. We're not lying or deceiving anybody. We're using a platform of entertainment to create a special effect to draw attention to illustrate a very valuable point, and that is it's very easy for human beings to be deceived. The world has been blinded by the evil one. His power lies in his ability to lie and his cleverness and not in his being incorporeal and a spirit being. Only God can genuinely has uh, authority to break the laws of physics. And so that's Introduce kinda, new factors for the intent of yeah. verifying a message, and that's the whole point. Colossians mm-hmm. 3, 23-24. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, whether yeah. that's in words, like we're answering questions now, or in deeds, yeah. whether it's in magic or in sculpting. So Just think, have, years yeah. ago, people didn't think that God could ever use a drummer or someone who played an electric guitar, and now we see it... <laughs> Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll wait for Cletus to object to that. If you want to know the inside joke, let us know. But we got another question from Nina, who wants to know: How do we know when someone claims to have a vision from Jesus and that Jesus saved them? How do we know that that isn't a magic trick when people claim to have Jesus appear in their bedrooms? Nina, it's always down to basically the same principle as when anyone comes to you with even a negative spiritual message. Tacking Jesus' names onto it doesn't make it better, it actually makes it worse, because I can name two people right now who tacked the name of Jesus onto a lot of the things that they said, and they are responsible for leading more people to hell than anyone else in history. Their names are Charles Taylor. Russell and Joseph Smith. So when we're talking about Jesus, we want to make sure it's the real deal. And how do you know that? Well, Jesus obviously isn't going to conflict with his own nature. And if he's revealed things about himself or spoken things in his word and then comes along and says something directly the opposite of that, we got a problem. And that's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 says, don't despise prophecies. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I, I received this word from the Lord, or Jesus appeared to me, or I had this dream, there are authentic cases of that that I can verify, but through what? That would be his mm-hmm. word. Then you say, okay, if I'm not to despise prophecies, how do I test all things and hold fast to what is mm-hmm. good? We recognize what is good, what's mm-hmm. in line with the character of God. That's yeah. the definition of good. So if someone comes to you and says, oh, uh, Jesus appeared to me, well, what did he say? He didn't really say anything. He just gave me the comfort that I needed in that moment, just reminding mm-hmm. me that he's there. Well, I think in the book of Acts, and I recall there were several instances where the Lord appeared to the Apostle Paul for that express purpose. I'm happy for you. I can, mm-hmm. I can see him doing that. Yeah, I think we can't that's know for certain if that happened, but there's you know, not a lot of good reasons to to distrust that it happened. Because he's done it before, and it's in line with his character. Yeah, whereas if someone says, well, Jesus appeared to me, and he told me that all the churches and all the religions were all wrong, and that we needed a new revelation because this had been corrupted, well, now I would take issue with that. Or if someone says the Virgin Mary appeared and starts to say things that directly contradict Scripture, well, now we have an issue. Now we have... That's the neat thing about 
God's plan in giving us his word and preserving his word throughout history is that we can test all things like the Bereans and Acts. Even what the Apostle Paul would say, we can test things and see whether or not they're true. We may not know whether the vision was a genuine vision or a hallucination or the person was just making it up on their own, but we can tell if it was of God or not. And if it contradicts or goes against what God teaches clearly in his, in his word, then clearly the vision or apparition or whatever they experienced was not of God. Next question is, are they lying? Were they deceived, hallucinated, or is this a demonic sort of... Um, Message, yeah. A, a demonic uh, deception, that's what I was going to say. Because, you know, just because Satan can't break the laws of physics by creating life out of nothing or out of dust does not mean that he cannot appear as an angel of light and deceive people. It's... Most likely that's what happened to Muhammad. It's most likely what happened to Joseph Smith. I, maybe they were lying and made it up, or maybe they actually saw, you know, a demonic uh, apparition that lied to them, and they bought it, thinking they were a genuine angel or a genuine messenger from God. Well, in Muhammad's case, that's what he took away from the experience, and he had to be literally talked off of a cliff in order to mm-hmm. think otherwise. But the point being made is this. When we hear anything from anyone, and Jesus' name gets mentioned, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we should be more gullible. That means we should go to maximum skeptability. Maximum testing, yeah. Skepticism, skeptability, I don't think is a word. But if it doesn't line up with what God's already revealed, then whatever's being talked about Mm -hmm. is not the Jesus that saves you, and certainly not the Jesus Mm -hmm. that's going to tell you the truth. If an angel from heaven, this is Galatians chapter 1, comes to you with any other gospel than what you've received, let them be accursed of God. Mm -hmm. So, Note that point, Nina. If someone brings Jesus' name to it, understand they're basically Mm -hmm. putting themselves in the Old Testament position of us waiting to throw rocks at them if they (laughs) say something wrong. We don't do that today, obviously, for good reason, but the point is still the same. That's serious. And and many people who did not have access to a missionary or a Bible or the gospel message, uh, many Muslims in many countries have had Jesus appear to them in dreams. Yeah, morethandreams.com. Yeah, and they've come to faith thinking, no, it's, I, he's re, he, he told me he's real, and I'm going to believe in him. You know, that's, that sends chills up my spine, and I'm grateful that I heard the message in a natural way, but I praise God that there are times where God uses, you know, spiritual, maybe even supernatural ways to nudge people to say, I'm here, and I'm real, and I exist. But note, he's not going to do that off the bat if he's already provided us with a lot simpler ways, because we don't want that kind of accountability. It's very serious when God has to get through to us that way. Well, we've got about 13 minutes left. (laughs) Ideal. Uh, We we went through our uh, contradictions, so why don't we uh, start the list over, because I guarantee you're going to hear these over and over again as well. Uh, These are taken from an atheist website, atheist.com, if you're interested. The uh, emphasis and point is that the Bible contradicts itself. Contradiction, for those of you who don't know, is a violation of the second formal law of logic that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel themselves out. So if the Bible contradicts itself, it's making statements that aren't consistent. Mm -hmm. It's 
conflicting with itself and thus can't be upheld as a source of truth. If the argument is valid, then their conclusion is also valid. We shouldn't trust the Bible. However, if they A, don't know what a contradiction is, B, misrepresent one or both passages in order to make them seemingly in conflict with each other, or just didn't take the time to read the whole verse, or maybe even the next mm-hmm. verse, then they're the ones not only contradicting themselves, but being outright dishonest. Yeah, there's no more credibility left when you make such simple errors as pointing out contradictions, especially when you're choosing one of the synoptic gospels in the Gospel of John, like the one we're going to look at. I had a chance to briefly look it up before we started, and I thought, this is actually published on a website? This is this is pretty sad. (laughs) Yeah, well, you've known that I've uh, spared no snark in reaction to some of these, (laughs) but the point still stands. So let's read it. Uh, First thing to do in rhetoric, as you all know, is to listen. So here's the claim. Did the Samaritans receive Jesus or not? So Mm. if in one instance Jesus was received by the Samaritans, and in the same instance another account says he wasn't at the same time, place, and by the same people, then that would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? That you went to a place and they both let you in and kicked you out. It's Mm -hmm. one or the other. Unless uh, They They couldn't accept him and not accept him receive him and kick him out at the same time. So that would be a contradiction if that were the case. Unless, of course, and we'll get into this in a moment. Let's set up the contradiction as contradictory as we can, Yeah, and then we'll explain what's going on. So I'll read the uh, the con the alt that they didn't receive him. I'll read the Luke. So this is coming out of Luke 9. Okay, I'll turn to John 4. And in verse 51, it even has the heading on the New King James Version, the, a Samaritan village rejects the Savior. So this is clearly rejection. It says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And said, actually, let me just skip what to the critical part. What is he going to do there? Um, let me, it, it says, let me read the important part, because I'm actually already, just reading one verse in context, I've already ruined the contradiction. But let me, let me try to make it as contradictory as possible. He sent messengers before him, he, and, and as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, Jesus, but they did not receive him. Okay, so we'll just stop there. They did not receive him. It, it says right there they were... Um, the, the Samaritans has entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for Jesus and they did not receive him. Okay, so Jesus wanted to go to the village of the Samaritans. He sent people ahead, but they said, no, don't no, let him come get here. Get out of here. Go away. We don't want any. All right, well... We have plenty of towels. Thanks. Yeah, let's uh, compare that to John chapter 4 and verse 39, where we read, this is after the uh, conversation with the woman by the well. Sorry to give more context. It's a habit. Uh, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed him because of the word of the woman who testified. He, this is her speaking. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. So even adding yeah, you, on an you, additional You ruined word. a little bit, too, by reading one verse early. You could have just started, uh, therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Oh, well, verse 39 <laughs> okay. is where they started. That's where I did. But, but that's, the, that's what deception happens. That's where deception takes place. When you hide critical data and you say, see... Samaritans came to him and asked him to stay versus 
They came to him and they said they didn't want him. Okay. When you remove relevant data and you just limit it to those two statements, it appears to be a contradiction. But what is the relevant data between these two events that would make their uh, claim, I guess, not very sticky? One and a half to two years. <laughs> you mean people can change their minds about someone over the span of one to two years? Yeah, and in Luke 9, if you read just a couple one verse verses, prior. yeah, it says that, and I had almost messed it up. I actually did. It says, <laughs> now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. So, so this means... We're getting close to the time of his end of his ministry. We're at the end point-ish. That he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So it even tells you why. He's like, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem you all know why. In fact, Jesus in this same chapter predicts why he has to go to Jerusalem. That he's going to be crucified, and he's going to come back to life. He even tells them what's happening. So it's it's possible that these Samaritans already knew that because he had been there before, and these were believers saying, well, if you're on your way to Jerusalem, then go. We don't want to keep you up here. Or they were sad, like Peter was, like, we're not going to let this happen. You don't even want you to come here because you're obviously on your way. We don't know the circumstances of their thinking. All we know is that they said no, and this obviously upset the disciples because they asked Jesus, should we uh, call fire from heaven and consume them, as Elisha did? And Jesus had to rebuke his disciples because... No, we, we're, not gonna, not my heart. we're not going to burn them with fire from heaven. We're going to just move on to another village. It's okay. We don't know why they decided this, but they just that's what happened. This was probably in the third year of Jesus' ministry. In John 4, it says that Jesus was on his way to Galilee, and he stopped in Samaria on his way to Galilee, and this took place in the first year of his ministry. And you can note that as well, because you don't even have to leave this chapter. It clarifies that John the Baptist was still baptizing people, so he hadn't been arrested by Herod, mm -hmm. which happened in the first year of his ministry. He hadn't been beheaded by Herodias, or whoever her name was, and of course the shenanigans that followed there. You go one chapter prior, John chapter 3, and you note that he's still on good terms with most of the Pharisees, mm -hmm. so he had hadn't been performing miracles as publicly yet, and of course, noting the beginning of his earthly ministry compared to the end, opinions are allowed to change. But yeah. if you misrepresent both passages, or at least distort one of them, I can see how you came to a misinformed conclusion. The problem is when you're talking to people about these sort of claims, you're not going to find someone who sees those two verses compared to one another and says, I wonder what that actually says. They're going to go, oh, I knew it. The Bible contradicts itself. The first and most important thing we tell people to do when someone makes this accusation, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Well, can you give me an example? Oh, so many, there's too many mm -hmm. to count. No, call their bluff. Show me where and when the Bible violates the second formal law of logic. Mm -hmm. That's the second step. 
know what a contradiction is and be able to spot that between a difference of a detail and a genuine contradiction, a yeah. mistranslation and a genuine contradiction, a misrepresentation and a contradiction. And, and you got to realize, too, that when you're comparing two Gospels, each Gospel had a slightly different purpose in why the author decided that they wanted to um, document the life of Jesus and his ministry. John's, you know, of Luke, course. Luke was about getting a very orderly account of Jesus's life and ministry. So you'll see things right up in before his even his conception and birth, his, his incarnation as a human in the womb of Mary. Whereas John's purpose is to demonstrate Jesus as the eternal Logos, the Word of life, and the one to which the light of life is given to all humanity. So John's purpose is very different than Luke's purpose. Luke is going to include statements that glorify and show Jesus as the divine being that he is, but that's not his main purpose. His purpose is to give you an orderly account, as he says in the first chapter. John spends the first 18 verses describing that Jesus is the Logos, the light of the world, and all that, <clears throat> and, and then um, starts with John the Baptist and his first encounter with Jesus when Jesus goes and gets baptized. That's where the Gospel of John starts. And uh, we got about a minute before the music starts. Uh, we were talking before the broadcast, laughing at this, and uh, making a comparison in your own life. Why don't we finish with that? So uh, you had an instance where you traveled to a certain country in northeastern Africa, and you also traveled to the same country, northern East Africa, but with the woman who would one day become your wife. Oh, yeah. Now, is that a contradiction? <laughs> yeah, it would be—this example would be like me saying, I was in Egypt, and I saw the Great Pyramid, and I did this really cool levitation. You can see the picture on my website. Um. And then another day, I tell the same story, and I say, yes, I did this really cool levitation, and uh, my wife was with me, and we were newlyweds, and uh, we, made, we created the illusion of making her levitate. Now, you may think, oh, he just contradicted himself, but I've been to Egypt four times, and the first three times I was a single man, and the fourth time I was a married man. Actually, no, five times Egypt, sorry. So the fifth time I went, I was married, and my wife came with me. <laughs> Time passes, yeah. details can be added. God bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.